0: He is a brilliant jurist with a clear and effective writing style universally regarded as one of the finest
1: and sharpest legal minds of our time.
2: Mr. President, thank you. Throughout this process, I've witnessed firsthand your appreciation for the vital role of the American judiciary. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks for tuning in. That was President Donald Trump introducing his pick for the Supreme Court to replace Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, a judge from the D.C. Circuit, is his pick. He got the nod from the president yesterday in the East Room of the White House. Here's Kavanaugh, who clerked for Justice Kennedy in the 1990s, speaking after his nomination last night. 30 years ago, President Reagan nominated Anthony Kennedy to the Supreme Court. The framers established that the Constitution is designed to secure the blessings of liberty. Justice Kennedy devoted his career to securing liberty. I am deeply honored to be nominated to fill his seat on the Supreme Court. And precisely no one should really be shocked by Trump's pick Of Brett Kavanaugh. He is a graduate of Yale Law School, which would make him the 11th justice in history to come from that school. He is a judge on the Federal Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which is where three other current justices came from and many, many others in history. That doesn't mean, though, that he will have an uncontested path to confirmation. Many Democrats are already decrying Kavanaugh's nomination because of the conservative approach to judging he espouses and particularly because of his presumed opposition to Roe v. Wade, the 1973 abortion ruling. Meanwhile, a lot of conservatives are pretty happy with the idea of Kavanaugh replacing Kennedy on the court, but not everyone. Some believe his rulings on some Obama-era regulations were too favorable. Both sides in Washington have invested a lot in the idea of controlling the courts as a means of controlling political outcomes in this country, and without question, right now at least, Republicans are winning pretty big, having prevented President Barack Obama from replacing Antonin Scalia in 2016, preserving the majority that the GOP has had on the court since the 1970s. So where do we go from here? What's Kavanaugh's confirmation process likely to look like? And if he joins the court, what effect is he likely to have? We're going to spend all our today, talking about Brett Kavanaugh and his nomination. Uh, We want to hear from you, of course. What do you think about Brett Kavanaugh as a nominee for the Supreme Court? What do you think about him replacing Anthony Kennedy on that court? What do you think of the politics that lurk in the background here, the maneuvering that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, indulged to preserve that Scalia seat for uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch, who uh, who was nominated and confirmed. Confirmed last year. Uh, should that inform how we think about uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh and his nomination? Should that be the way that Democrats sort of approach this whole thing? Give us a call. 313 577 1019 is the number always on the phones to join the conversation. That's 313 577 1019. A little later in the program, we're going to spend some time talking more deeply about Roe v. Wade with Wayne State University law professor Bob Sedler, who is an expert on that ruling. But we want to start today with Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle, whose recent column takes on the notion that the justices of the Supreme Court have become what she calls priest kings. Megan, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So let's uh, let's start with that phrase, priest kings. <laughs> what do you mean by that?
3: <laughs> uh, what I mean is that, you know, the the idea of the separation of powers, right? We start off, we've got three co-equal branches of government. Um, and over the years, for various reasons, partly because the legislature has, for reasons that aren't clear, ceded many of its powers to the executive and the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. But also because in, in, starting in mid-century, you have this expansive idea about what courts are supposed to do. yeah, um, And instead of sort of answering questions that only the court can answer. The courts start answering questions the legislatures are perfectly capable of answering, but have not answered to the justices' satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, and they're doing this not with some you know democratic power, but because they've been invested with this sacred, mystical um, power over the legal system. And so it's, it's Roe v. Wade is kind of the, the ur case of this. It's the most famous one. But there's a lot of cases where justices are coming in Things like they, they overturned the death penalty mm-hmm. um, and then had to undo it when it became clear that that had been abridged too far. Um, but these were things where, look, I oppose the death penalty as a substantive matter. I think that that was the correct thing to do. But that's not really something. It, it's kind of clear that it was not banned in the Constitution because the death penalty was widespread at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could not possibly have intended to, to ban uh, the death penalty when they're writing it. Um, And so as they're taking on more and more powers like this, um, the idea was that they're supposed to put these these important questions beyond the reach of the legislature, right? Instead of letting sort of popular sentiment, fickle, democratic, majoritarian urges settle things, that the court is going to just take these questions out of the political process. And so the death penalty is one, um, obviously abortion, gay marriage now. Mm -hmm. that These these things have been taken into the court. Um, And the idea was that that was supposed to make settling these questions easier. In fact, all it did was focus us on getting control of the Supreme Court. So each party now, our elections are increasingly just not about electing legislators who are going to legislate, but electing presidents who are going to pick our actual legislators, and then electing a legislature that will just kind of rubber stamp whatever that president does. Yeah, it's, it's kind incredibly of incredibly unhealthy. It's
2: kind of not the way the American system.
3: Democracy and that <laughs> even though I often agree with what they're saying, I want to see much more modesty on the Supreme Court. Um, in terms of striking down laws and in terms of saying the legislature isn't allowed to touch this. Yeah. Uh,
2: you know, uh, I, I covered the court for five terms uh, in the 2000s, and and that was a time when uh, there was a lot of heated debate over the court's role, over who was going to be on it. Uh, I, I covered both the the the, the Nominations and confirmation hearings for uh, Justices Alito and chief justice Roberts. but but that that's not anything new in in American jurisprudence. i mean this is this is something that the we've struggled with since the Republic was founded, this idea of these three coequal branches and what role they play. Uh, do you think it's different now? Do you think it's worse today than it than it than it has been?
3: Uh, I do. Uh, in part because of what happened with Merrick Garland mm-hmm. and Gorsuch. Um, but this has been coming for a long time, and I think it, it really starts... I mean, you can you can argue it where it starts, right? Um, but I think my read of it is that it starts with the Democrats, and it first of all starts with a legal establishment that, you know, it sort of reflects the values of the class of the people from which drugs- judges are, are drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they, they start legislating their preferences on things like abortion. Um, And then the conservatives rally and say, "Okay, well, we've obviously got to come up with well-qualified conservative judges who Republican presidents can appoint, you know, the Federalist Society and and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then they nominate Bork and Kennedy rallies this massive liberal opposition campaign to Bork's uh, nomination. Yes. And prior to that, there had been kind of, you know, Abe Fortas was filibustered on a bipartisan basis, but that was really not over his politics. It was just over his character. Um, this was the first time that that basically we're, we're kind of saying, no, you can't have an ideological judge on the court. Only our ideological judges are allowed to be right, on the court. Right. And that sets off an escalating tit for tat that has now been going on for decades. Right. This is in the 80s. Um, Republicans retaliate by slowing down Clinton judges, Democrats up the ante. By the time we're in, you know, 2013 and Harry Reid just says, no, nope, we're getting rid of the filibuster. Um, that was a big norm violation, sure. right? This is getting rid of the filibuster for judicial appointment. And, you know, Democrats will say, well, we had to because Republicans would have done it anyway. That's not clear to me from talking to, uh, conservatives in Washington, my sense is that, like, had the filibuster stayed, no, Democrats would not have gotten the opportunity to appoint a Democratic judge at this juncture. But they might have been able to kind of put some pressure on who got nominated. Sure, sure. right? They might have been able to, to, to move that nomination to the left somewhat.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, and they've now lost that weapon. Um, and then, of course, you know, Republicans will say that what they did and with with Garland was a retaliation for re- getting rid of the filibuster. Yeah, they have you, said you know, that. it's very hard, though, at this point. Everyone has grievance, legitimate grievances <laughs> about the norm violations on the other side. Every side views their own escalation of this as merely what they have to do to get back even with the last thing that happened. It's incredibly toxic. Uh, I would love to see it stop, but I, I don't see much prospect that it will. Yeah. Uh,
2: This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Megan McArdle. She is a columnist for The Washington Post and author of two recent columns titled Behold the Priest Kings of the Future Supreme Court and Let Roe Go. We are talking about Brett Kavanaugh and his nomination to replace Anthony Kennedy on the U.S. Supreme Court made last night by President Donald Trump in the East Room at the White House. That will set off, of course, a round of meetings. With uh, the new nominee on Capitol Hill, and then hearings in front of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, and then a vote about whether uh, Brett Kavanaugh will be the next. Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, if you want to call and uh, join the conversation, give us a call and tell us, are you worried about the future of abortion rights or are you excited about the solidification of a conservative court? Both of those issues hang in the balance with Brett Kavanaugh and his nomination to the court. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Also, tell us what you think about the judicial wars, so to speak, uh, the back and forth between Democrats and Republicans uh, fighting over what the rules should be with regard to confirming judges and what kinds of people ought to be acceptable as nominees for seats on not just the US Supreme Court but many of the lower courts as well. Again, 3135771019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to David in Gross Point. David, welcome to Detroit today. Hi. You there? Uh, David, I think
0: we're What I think we're observing at least in my opinion uh-huh. is a a negative artifact of Citizens United. I think that the uh, your guest commented that the uh, legislature sort of deferred all of its action to uh, the executive branch and the uh, judicial branch, and, you know, in my opinion, they really don't, the legislature doesn't really have to act anymore because they already are completely funded by corporate America. Hmm. And as a result, the public opinion as a whole is sort of waned in its influence. And the, uh, you know, I would personally would love to see Citizens United overturned, but maybe that's wishful thinking. But I'd like you to consider it from that angle. And huh. uh, again, thanks for having me. And I'll take my response off air.
2: Okay, David. Thanks very much uh, for the call, Megan Mcardle. How does Citizens United and its effect? on the legislature sort of figure into these arguments we're having about the Supreme court.
3: So in the Supreme irony of my life as a libertarian columnist, uh, my father was a lobbyist. And uh, <laughs> every, every time I would say something mean about lobbyists, he would write me an email and say, uh, you know, you do know what paid for college. That's right? right. How did you um, get here? <laughs> but, so my, my take on how lobbying works is a little different. Uh, From what I think the kind of general idea is, which is that money matters, but it doesn't buy you legislation. It buys you access. Mm -hmm. It buys you the right to pitch someone. But if you can't go in and pitch this guy about why this is going to help your voters. So, for example, my dad lobbied locally in New York um, and he pitched people on the Second Avenue subway. But he didn't like pitch them by making huge campaign donations. He pitched them by saying, I'm going to do jobs. Your constituents will be happy with the Second Avenue subway right now. (laughs) He's lobbying for the heavy construction industry, which is going to get the contracts to do these uh, these jobs. But ultimately, if you can't tell a, legislature, a legislator, this is what is going to be in your campaign ad that is going to make you win re-election, um, you know, come the next uh, round of elections, then you're not going to get very far. And mm. so I don't think that the problem is that corporations have bought legislators. I think the problem is that voters have these incredibly... Um, you know, sort of incommensurable preferences, mm-hmm. right? So basically, he, one big example on the budget, if you poll people, you ask them, um, should, the, should we have a high deficit? Should we raise ca- taxes? Should we cut spending? You get the same answers all the time. Absolutely, we should not have a deficit. Absolutely, we should not cut any meaningful program. The only program they want to cut is foreign aid, mm-hmm. which is like 0.03% of the budget. Sure. Um, And we shouldn't raise taxes on anyone uh, except like four guys making a billion dollars a year. And then the worst part is, if you actually explain to them foreign aid is just not that big a part of the budget, you're going to have to do some (laughs) math. They just stick to their guns on the preferences. And so legislators, knowing this, they don't want accountability. Right. If you have accountability, (laughs) then voters are going to get angry at you and vote you out of office. And so they're offloading their job onto the executive and onto the courts, right. precisely because those guys are more insulated from direct accountability to voters. And so they just, they have this preference for doing as little as possible, except like naming national parks and similarly kind of boring, inoffensive stuff, because it is going to anger some group, some powerful group uh, in their voting base. Mm-hmm. And then they risk getting run out of office.
2: Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I want to I have you talk a little about Roe v. Wade. Uh, your recent column, Let Roe Go, talks about the outsized role that that ruling plays in American politics and that, uh, as you said earlier, the, the goal was to try to settle the question uh, politically. It, it's done a- anything but that. But uh, I, I wonder what you think the prospects are for Roe if someone like Brett Kavanaugh replaces uh, Anthony Kennedy, my, my sense of it is that Roe has been so hollowed out already uh, by the courts uh, and, and states have so much more leeway than they used to that there's almost no point in going at it square on to try to overturn Roe. But, but I wonder if you think that's something this court might now contemplate.
3: I think it's really hard to know because the way you get to the Supreme Court now is by leaving no paper trail that will indicate what you might do on your <laughs> way. Right, you, you won't say anything, <laughs> right? So it's, it's like this is now like a professional career track. It's just saying nothing about Roe, and there's this there's this wonderful sort of theater of confirmation hearings, right, where judges are asked what they would do, and they're mm-hmm. like, I have, I've never heard of this decision. What is this, Roe, Doe, you know, Doe made? I'm not sure I'm familiar with this decision, right? Um, so I don't know what will happen. Um, I think, I don't think that what will happen is that, like, a case will come up and immediately Roe will be, be overturned. Mm-hmm. I think you're likely to see something more like what you saw with a booed in the mm-hmm. Janus case mm-hmm. decision, which was a Public can public sector uh, unions force people to join or pay sure. them agency fees, right? Um, and a boot had been a decision saying they could, and the court kind of chipped away at it. And then in Janus this term, right. they came out and said, "Well, you know, actually, now this is totally a boot is now totally consistent with these other three rulings, so we're we're overturning it." <laughs> um, and I think you could see something like that. I think that the effect of that legislatively is likely to be much more modest than people think it will Mm -hmm. um there are states with trigger laws um but there are states with trigger laws where i'm kind of frankly doubtful that if this actually happened um that if Roe were actually overturned you can see there would be immense legislative pressure to immediately undo those trigger laws some of them were passed quite a long time ago um And, you know, I think that there's there's not actually if you look at the polling um, on where the public is on abortion, it's conflicting. It depends on how you word the question. But ultimately, the public says, look, I don't want abortions in the second trimester unless the life of the mother is at stake or the health of the mother is at stake. Um, First trimester, there's a majority, I think, for Mm -hmm. abortion on demand. Mm -hmm. Um, in the first trimester. But people, but there's also like people that kind of celebrate your abortion, shout your abortion. That is not a majority opinion, and it actually really turns people off. Um, and here's the interesting thing, is I actually think that both sides would really have to moderate if Roe were overturned, because all of this shout your abortion stuff, which mm-hmm. plays really well when you're not actually trying to get legis- legislation passed, I think starts looking it's a real bad look if you're trying to convince kind of ordinary Americans sure. to actually support a legislator who will do something concrete and meaningful on abortion rather than these kind of minor restrictions, minor extensions that we have now because of Roe. Um, and so and similarly on the other side, you know, all of this no rape incest in the life of the mother, um, yeah, you know, that's fine if you can't pass any laws that have anything to do with that. But I think a lot of voters who say I'm pro-life would think again, if they were thinking about telling a rape victim, you've got to carry your attacker's baby to term. Mm. And so I actually think that you would see some movement towards the middle mm. by both parties and that that would ultimately be healthy because the the country understands this is a complicated issue. Most people think it's, it's morally fraught. They don't want to completely ban it, but they don't want it to be common and they don't want to celebrate it. Mm. And I think that that is is where our law in most places would end up. There would be some variation. You know, New York, Nevada, uh, Massachusetts, California would have much more liberal laws than Alabama. And some states might ban it entirely. But I think the number of states that would actually do just an outright ban would be pretty small. um, And that we would find that the country, people just get much less exercised by stuff that's happening in other states. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that the country, pe- most people would be able to live with whatever the law was in their jurisdiction. And I think that that is hmm. a better outcome than we have now, where, I mean, you know, and, and liberals say to me, this is terrible. How can you talk this way about a right? It's like conservatives are getting the court. If, if Trump gets another term, there's a good chance we'll have six seats on the court. They sure. could not only overturn Roe, um, they could say rule that equal protection requires yes. protecting the fetus and no abortion anywhere in the United States. So. You really, like, sue for a separate piece now is is kind of my argument on this. You cannot take the law, and I think this is a broad point that I'll close with. You cannot take – we talk about rights, we talk about – and, of course, these things are important. You cannot take the law too far beyond community standards. Mm -hmm. If you do, the law loses democratic legitimacy, and you end up with what we have now, which is this just frantic battle – bashing each other and doing poisonous things to both the law and our democracy yeah. in a quest to push our vision of the world on a bunch of voters who do not agree with us. Yeah.
2: Okay. Megan McArdle, columnist for The Washington Post. Thanks very much for joining us here on Detroit Today.
3: Thanks for
2: having me. Mm -hmm. All right. Up next, we're going to continue our our discussion about Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court. Also, don't forget, if you miss any of today's conversation, you can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. Also, remember to join us in reading this summer. Uh, Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, and we are going to have lots of conversations about housing insecurity here in Southeast Michigan uh, using that book as the foundation. You can go to Facebook and search for the Detroit Today Summer Book Club and join us in the online discussion. All right, we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking this hour about Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to replace Justice Anthony Kennedy on the U.S. Supreme Court. That nomination was made Yesterday by President Donald Trump in the East Room at the White House, we will now see probably a pretty rapid succession of interviews with with Judge Kavanaugh and then hearings in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and then a vote uh, in the committee and on the Senate floor before he might be Confirmed. Joining us now to talk more about uh, Justice Kavanaugh or Judge Kavanaugh and what he might do to the Supreme Court is Jamal Green, who is a Dwight professor of law at Columbia Law School, uh, also clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens on the Supreme Court. Jamal, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good to join you. Yes, good to hear your voice as well. Uh, So uh, let's talk first uh, about your reaction to Brett Kavanaugh as uh, the, the nominee to replace Anthony Kennedy, is this uh, as good as liberals and Democrats might have hoped for, or is this something that people might be fearful about?
1: Well, I think from a liberal perspective, you know, the writing on the wall for this kind of pick kind of happened when the election happened, Mm -hmm. right? So in one sense, it it is a good result from a liberal perspective in the sense that you've got um, uh, Donald Trump, who has shown an ability to be a real wild card and a pretty complicit Congress. Uh, and the pick you got in Brett Kavanaugh is really someone who you would have expected from just about any Republican president. Mm-hmm. He's a well-credentialed, mainstream conservative, very, very conservative uh, uh, pick, uh, but, uh, but perfectly well-qualified for the Supreme Court, I think anyone would say. Um, and then it's just a matter of the politics of his views.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is very interesting about Justice Kennedy and his seat uh, on the court is is this this I think somewhat mythology about the swing vote that he that he represented. I mean, on maybe 90 percent of issues, Justice Kennedy was a pretty conservative vote. There were some places where he deviated from that conservatism, but is there is there a sense that? Brett Kavanaugh would be fundamentally different on most things than Justice Kennedy
1: was. I don't think we have good reason to think that there'd be a huge huge difference on most things. Uh, I think it's really the things that a lot of people care about. uh, You might really see a difference. And, Mm -hmm. of course, Roe v. Wade and and abortion rights is one of those areas. Um, LGBT rights is another. Capital punishment is another, where in select areas, Justice Kennedy... Um, sided with the more liberal wing of the court, but uh, you're right. In, in, in the vast majority of, of areas, uh, Justice Kennedy was a pretty down the line uh, conservative Repo- Republican. And I'm, you I know, mean, I'm old enough to remember um, when Justice Kennedy was the Brett Kavanaugh of his mm-hmm. of his age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really, what's happened is the court itself, and, and maybe the country to some degree, has moved uh, to the right. Uh, and so that makes um, someone like Kennedy look more liberal than he once, uh, than he, than he once did.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I also wonder about uh, voting rights, which hasn't gotten a whole lot of play or discussion in the run-up uh, to this nomination, but is, uh, of course, an area of the law where the court has been more and more active in recent years. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh strikes me as someone who would have a pretty dim view of uh, the, the the power of the Voting Rights Act, for instance, uh, might take an even dimmer view than Justice Kennedy did about things like uh, gerrymandering and the limits that uh, the constitutional limits that might exist for that. What's your sense of where we might be on those issues in the coming years?
1: I, I think that's right. I think you have, we have every reason to suppose that uh, a, a justice, Brett Kavanaugh, would line up just about where John Roberts or san Alito is on voting rights, which is they they cast the vote to uh, gut the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. uh, in the Shelby County case back in 2013, uh, and both of them are uh, as uh, we have good reason to think are uh, also have a dim view of uh, claims of partisan gerrymandering. Uh, justice Kennedy is kind of was kind of on the fence in gerrymandering cases so he was that, that those who believe that gerrymandering should be struck down by the court as unconstitutional held out some hope that Justice Kennedy's they'd be able to get Justice Kennedy's vote one day um, that hope is is significantly dimmed with uh, a, a, with Judge Kavanaugh mm-hmm. um, very likely being um, uh, appointed to fill his his, his slot
2: yeah uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Jamal Green, the Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia Law School, also a former clerk for Justice John Paul Stevens, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we're talking about Brett Kavanaugh, the latest nominee to join the justices of the Supreme Court, uh, President Donald Trump's nomination to replace Anthony Kennedy. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, tell us what you think about the prospect for abortion rights, for voting rights, for for all kinds of things that uh, people on the left side of the political spectrum hold dear, given that uh, Donald Trump will replace Anthony Kennedy with someone who's probably a little more solidly conservative uh, than he was. What do you think of the politics that surround this nomination, this idea of the seat that was taken from Barack Obama when Antonin Scalia died in 2016 and handed to Donald Trump after he won the election. Should that inform some of the discussion about Brett Kavanaugh and his uh, nomination process? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us, are you worried? Are you concerned that Roe v. Wade will be overturned? Are you concerned that gay marriage, which uh, was given a big boost by the court uh, in terms of its legality uh, recently, are you concerned that that? will be in jeopardy with Brett Kavanaugh on the court. As always, the number is 1019 That's 313 1019 You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will uh, try to work you into the conversation. Jacob on Facebook says, overall, I think Trump played it safe with Kavanaugh. He's certainly more textualist than Kennedy, but only By a half step, Amy Coney Barrett would have been a bolder, more influential change. Paul on Facebook says, a solid choice. He's a respected jurist and legal scholar. Kagan, Justice Kagan, hired him to teach at Harvard. Uh, Mark on Facebook says, no one should be able to pick the judge that will preside over his own criminal trial. Uh, They're hinting at uh, the Mueller investigation and the the possibility, I suppose, uh, that some of those matters might end up in front of the Supreme Court. Again, 313 uh, 577 is the number on the phones. Uh, let's go to Roger in Lake Orion. Roger, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Hey, Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, I rather appreciated the first Megan, I believe her name was. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm a conservative, right? I'm, I'm very conservative, so I don't share a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the views that liberals share, but I waited patiently, all through the Barack Obama thing, all through the gay marriage thing, all of it, because the truth is is that we're a nation of laws, and that's what we do. So I understand that there's an ebb and flow of things get a little bit better for my worldview, things get a little bit worse for my worldview, because that's how plurality exists, right? That's the reality of life. Not everybody agrees with me, mm-hmm. and that's okay. So the thing that's happening right now, and what I don't understand is that for that whole duration where, like, progressivism really kind of took hold, the conversation was always about how we're supposed to be kind and tolerant and accepting. And now that there's been a slight swing right, I mean, I wouldn't call Trump terribly conservative. In fact, he's he's sort of perplexing to us. But he's doing some of the right things, and, and I appreciate his mannerisms and how he makes decisions Maybe his tweets and stuff like that are a little bit rough, but he's not that bad. He's doing an all right job. And then
1: during this whole
4: thing, the progressive side is just, I mean, chicken little, like the whole world is falling apart. And there's actually violence because of it. I watched a video the other day. A kid got a a pop thrown in his face for wearing a hat.
2: Yeah. You know, Roger, I, really appreciate that uh, you're listening and that you called in uh, to share your perspective. I got to say I don't really agree. Uh, I think uh, I think if you sit on the opposite side of the political spectrum from this president if you are somebody uh, whose history in this country is one of exclusion and oppression uh, it's really hard to see that pre- this president in the way that, that you're describing there but but I, I again I really do appreciate you your listening and and calling in I do want to follow up though on this idea that uh, maybe the, the the fight over the courts is somehow overblown or that uh, that one side or the other makes too much uh, of, of all of this uh, Jamal green uh, professor at Columbia law you clerked uh, for Justice Stevens on the Supreme Court. Is, is there too much made of of all of this?
1: Well, I, I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I do think that there are lots of consequential decisions the court makes. If the court were to overturn Roe v. Wade in a number of states, you would see more restrictive abortion laws mm-hmm. come into effect, and that has real serious effects on people's lives. And across a number of areas, the court, uh, this court decisions really do affect uh, bread and butter issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I do think that people can get a little bit too caught up in the politics of all this. Which is to say, you know, things can change more quickly than we expect on the court. uh... You know, Justice Scalia's death was unexpected, and then all of a sudden, it looked like uh, the possibility of a kind of five-four liberal majority on the court until the uh, Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans stepped in and. Prevented Merrick Garland from taking a seat on the court, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, I think this looks like a very bleak moment from a liberal perspective right now, with Justice Kennedy as the the kind of swing vote being replaced by what people assume to be a pretty reliable conservative. But uh, but again, I, I think uh, if you take the long view, I think uh, you, you know you never know how fast these can these things can can change. Yeah. Uh,
2: before I let you go, I want I want to get you to talk some about. The reliance on the courts by people, as I was saying to our caller there in in Lake Orion, the, the reliance of people who have been historically excluded, have been historically oppressed, have have historically had their rights not respected by the other branches of government uh, on the courts, to, to to go to the courts to say, listen, we, re- we really need you to, to interpret the Constitution in a way uh, that that does respect those rights, that does respect our humanity. There's a lot of criticism of that reliance from the conservative side of the political spectrum, but but I wonder what you make of, of what the alternative might be, particularly in, in an era like this, where uh, conservatives are themselves so adamant about keeping control of the courts. In part, you have to presume... Uh, because of their fear of those kinds uh, of rulings.
1: Well, I, I would actually sound a note of caution here uh, from a, a liberal perspective. I, mm-hmm. do, I do think that the idea of courts as being a kind of neutral um, body that can resist the political process and protect the rights of minorities and mm-hmm. people who have been oppressed is a very important part of the court's image. Uh, it was very important during the civil rights era and mm-hmm. uh, during the revolution in criminal procedure in the 1960s, First Amendment rights and so forth. But if you think about a lot of the major rulings by the court, Shelby County striking down part of the Voting Rights Mm -hmm. Act, Citizens United, um, uh, for example, uh, limiting campaign finance restrictions, uh, lots of of decisions in which the court has limited civil rights measures passed by Congress, Uh, courts uh, and the Supreme Court often prevents the political branches from recognizing rights or solving certain kinds of problems and, and can do that as much as it can protect uh, minority rights or individual rights. So I think we can't get too caught up in the kind of myth of the court as being uh, this institution that's always going to protect minority rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you believe in a certain kind of politics, you want to have those politics kind of represented um, on the court. Um, but, you know, the court's not going to save you and very often uh, depending on who's who's kind of in control of the court, it can really hurt poli- um, politics it sure. can really and Megan McCardle was talking about that a little bit with respect to uh, uh, abortion rights. when you kind of shift everything onto the court, it really does have an effect on the political process in ways that are not always a um, um, positive yeah.
2: Okay, Jamal Green, Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia Law School, former clerk for Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Thanks very much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Up next, we're going to talk to Wayne State Professor Bob Sedler about the future of abortion rights under a more conservative court. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313 577 1019. Tell us what you feel in reaction to Brett Kavanaugh being nominated to replace Anthony Kennedy on the US Supreme Court. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're spending the hour talking about President Donald Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, to replace Anthony Kennedy on the U.S. Supreme Court. If you want to join us, give us a call. Tell us, are you worried about the future of rulings like Roe v. Wade or the ruling that legalized gay marriage or voting rights uh, in this country? Are you concerned that someone like Brett Kavanaugh will turn the court more to the right Uh, and perhaps jeopardize some of those rulings? Or are you thinking that uh, this was a pretty good nomination by the president, that somebody with Brett Kavanaugh's experience uh, and reputation and resume is the right person for the court? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today will work you into the conversation. And joining us now to talk more about Roe v. Wade in particular is Robert Sedler, who is a distinguished professor of law at Wayne State University and somebody who has spent a long time thinking quite deeply about Roe, its effect, and its place in court history. Uh, professor Sedler, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you.
5: It's always a pleasure.
2: Yes, always great to see you. So let's start with your uh, quick reaction to the idea of Brett Kavanaugh replacing Anthony Kennedy on
5: the court, uh, is this a good pick? Again, it's a standard conservative pick. Mm -hmm. He's a very qualified uh, judge. He likely will be confirmed. The court will now have a solid, quote, conservative majority. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. It means that on open questions that are going to arise in the future, such as whether the Constitution prohibits partisan gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to get a conservative decision against recognizing new rights, so to speak. But the court doesn't go back. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh said last night he supports precedent. I mean, Roe v. Wade has been a precedent for 40-some years. Mm -hmm. I litigated the Kentucky version of Roe v. Wade Mm -hmm. when I was at the University of Kentucky. When the Supreme—when Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito were confirmed. I wrote an op-ed, the Supreme Court will not overrule Roe v. Wade. That was 2005. This comes up every time. It does. The court will overrule cases sometimes when they have been undercut by subsequent cases and when there's been no societal reliance. So under those criteria, there would be no basis whatsoever For anticipating that the court, no matter how constituted, would overrule Roe v. Wade. We pay a lot of attention to the individual justices, but the court itself works as an institution. institution,
2: That's absolutely Um, right.
5: The more interesting case is Women's Whole Health. That was decided two years ago. Mm -hmm. It was a five to four decision with Justice Kennedy in the majority saying the states cannot enact laws that impose an undue burden on a woman's ability to have an abortion, such as requiring doctors to have admitting privileges at hospitals or requiring that abortion clinics be equipped like a surgical facility, and those various laws that a number of states have passed restricting abortion are all unconstitutional Mm -hmm. uh, under Women's Whole Health. Now, the question would be, would the Supreme Court grant review in a case to question the uh, constitutionality of these regulations. Could it undercut women's whole health? Not very likely. One should never say never, but the court very rarely overrules cases. It overruled a case last term on agency shop for public employees, but it has been questioning that case for some while. It overruled another case about taxing internet sales. But the court moves slowly. The court moves incrementally. Now, many political-type commentators say, oh, well, the court doesn't pay any attention to doctrine and precedent. And we don't know what the court does. All we know is what the court tells us. And lawyers argue doctrine and precedent. Yeah. Uh,
2: It also strikes me that, and I said this a little earlier in the program, Roe has been so whittled away at and hollowed out over the decades uh, that states have far more latitude now than they used to. So, for instance, in Mississippi right now, it's not really possible to get an abortion. And that's because they've they've made it more difficult for clinics to exist, things like that. Texas is headed the same way. It almost makes it uh, – not worthwhile, I suppose, to 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 go and uh, square on attack the, the the fundamental premise of Roe because most of what conservatives want, which is for states to be able to
5: decide for themselves what to do, they already have. Well, that's I don't agree with that. No, women's whole health has changed that, and the courts struck down those Texas laws. Right? Now there are some states where. It's difficult for abortion clinics to operate uh, because- There's some states where there are there, none. There's op- well, right. there's, mostly there's an abortion clinic in every state, including Mississippi. Um, but And we don't have a situation today where women who want an abortion cannot get one. The real problem is there are these obstacles, and some of which are not legal obstacles, and those are difficult. But basically- The Constitution prohibits the states Mm -hmm. from enacting laws that impose an undue burden on a woman's ability to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And in the United States today, as it has been ever since Roe v. Wade, women are not required to have unwanted pregnancies. Of course, abortion is way down. Uh, It used to be 1.2 million a year. It's now down to 700,000. What is the difference? Forty percent of babies born in the United States today are born to single women. There's no longer a stigma of being a single mom. And so in that sense, uh, abortion is way down, and that's fine. This is choice. It's not about abortion. It's all about a woman's right to make a choice to continue or discontinue her pregnancy. Yeah.
2: Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Let's go to Debbie in Farmington Hills. Debbie, welcome to Detroit today.
3: Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm just thrilled that he chose another white
2: male.
3: Absolutely. (laughs) From my days back in Marquette University when the guys would give their input on women's rights to abortion, it's nauseating. Hmm. Your your previous... uh, the man speaking was absolutely right. It's about a woman's right to do what's right for her body,
2: hmm. and that's it. Hmm. Debbie, uh, I appreciate the call and the comments, uh, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of people uh, probably feel exactly the same way you do. Uh, Bob Settler, that does raise the question of diversity on the court, uh, which from time to time becomes an issue. It seems to be far more when there's a Democratic president than. Uh, when there is a, a Republican, there were some women on the list uh, that that uh, President Trump considered. Uh, this, that that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of play well, the President, today. However,
5: President Reagan appointed the first woman, mm-hmm. Justice O'Connor, and mm-hmm. the sole African American on the court, Justice Thomas, uh, was appointed mm-hmm. by George H. W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Justice Soto Mayor who is Hispanic. Yeah, um, but clearly the majority of uh, justices are white males, and that's so typical of, uh, of American society. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, the fact that you have women and minorities on the court, I think, influences the court. Sure, Influence, uh, It's this different than when I came on the scene many, many years ago <laughs> when it was nine white men. Yes. That was the court. Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, again, uh, thanks very much, Debbie, for that call. Let's go to Brian in Birmingham. Brian, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Hey, how's it going today, guys? Good, how are you?
0: I just want everybody that is listening to this program right now throughout Michigan know that this pick was totally about Trump. This is all about Trump covering his butt. He's bribed, bailed, and bought off people his entire career, his entire life. The guy's been involved in 3,000 lawsuits to try and get his way the way he wants it. Hmm. Now, he wanted a a hotel in Russia. That's That's a proven fact.
4: Before he was even elected president,
0: before he was even put into office, intelligence uh, community.
2: Brian, I think we're, we're losing you there. Uh, I, I think what you're referring to is the idea that this court could be asked at some point to determine uh, the, the constitutionality of charges, I suppose, against the president. If, if Bob Mueller mm-hmm. brings him, uh, Bob Seller, what do you think about
5: that? I think there's no indication that justices... Have any loyalty to the president who appointed them? I mean, the classic example was the justices appointed by President Truman, mm-hmm. ruled that he acted unconstitutionally <laughs> when he seized the steel mills. Right. Um, but you know, it's interesting. Conservatives and liberals. As you know, I'm very liberal, mm-hmm. but go back and forth on this matter of presidential power. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, you had, a de- we have a Democratic president. Conservatives seem to push the power of Congress. Then, uh, But now, for example, the conservatives have attacked the Affordable Care Act saying Congress didn't have the power. Mm-hmm. Conservatives used to say the court should not strike down acts of Congress. So it all depends on what the <laughs> issues are. But one of my favorite cases is Jones v. Clinton. Mm-hmm. Paula Jones sued Bill Clinton for sexual harassment. Right. All my conservative friends said Clinton doesn't have a pass. He's the president. He has to defend the suit. Supreme Court agreed. Well, now President Trump is being sued, and the conservatives are saying, "Oh, President Trump is too busy." Right. He but can't the, face that, the precedent right? of Jones v. Clinton controls, yes. and I think that this is what we often tend to forget: the so much of American constitutional law is. settled. settled. So many of the cases involve application of settled principles. So the court works as an institution, including in constitutional cases. There are five to four decisions. There were five of them last night, last term, where Kennedy joined the conservatives. Then you had two cases, one with Justice Gorsuch uh, and one with Chief Justice Roberts, Roberts. who joined the liberals. So it you goes back and work forth. It's, it's it's work more It's more complex than
2: uh, the political lens often leads us to believe. Okay, Bob Sedler, distinguished professor of law at Wayne State University. It's always great to have you here on Detroit Today. It's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. We will see you tomorrow.